What up, Hyperchange? Welcome to the new podcast. It's Sunday Scheme Sesh. Uh, there's, wow, so much, ex- I have so much, I'm like on one right now because I just recorded an interview uh, with Nick Carter, the Bitcoin thought leader. I mean, this guy was, ne- I've been trying to get this interview. I, I can't wait to post it. You're probably gonna be watching this first, so I'm, I'm not gonna say too much about it, but other than, you know, talking about the energy usage of Bitcoin, how we can get over that, Tesla's involvement in Bitcoin. If he were Elon, what would he do on how to integrate Bitcoin? I mean, so, I'm just, I've been excited. And I know that, um, this week to me has been all about Bitcoin. I mean, we had the B word conference, um, with Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, uh, Nick Carter, obviously, um, all presenting, talking about Bitcoin, uh, pushing the conversation forward. I feel like I learned a ton also made my whole live stream about me pushing a bunch of my assets into Bitcoin. Um, you know, Uniswap and Unisox just moving around some of my weird ETH stuff into Bitcoin because my conviction in Bitcoin has never been higher. Um, I think there's a lot to unpack here. I know I get uh, some beef from people with Bitcoin because um, they think it doesn't go along with, you know, making the world better. It's not sustainable from a climate change perspective. So I've been thinking so much about this and how, you know, all I'm going to say about this right now is Bitcoin uses 0.2% of the world's global uh, electricity consumption. That's about an estimate right now. That was from Nick Carter's talk. Um, I think over the long run, that will scale if Bitcoin becomes a $60 trillion asset up 100X from the 600 billion today, that would be about five times or six times bigger than gold is today at 10 trillion. Um, I think we'd be looking at five to 10% of the current world's energy consumption that would be dedicated to Bitcoin, but it would be replacing the entire global financial system or a huge piece of it. I think that's a fair estimate. And then the biggest realization that I've had about Bitcoin's energy usage is that it's actually um, a lot of the energy that is being used to mine Bitcoin would have gone wasted or curtailed or isn't in competition to residential energy. It's it's energy that, you know, would have just gone to waste because we couldn't sell it back to the grid or, or you know, what have you. And so Bitcoin is this unique energy buyer comes into the equation. And I think we'll actually, because of this paper from ARC, um, th- this, this new theory that Bitcoin will actually accelerate the adoption of renewable energy because it increases the uh, speeding up the ROI of new energy projects of which solar and wind tied with batteries are soon to be the cheapest. And so I think there is a huge uh we're in a huge coming of age moment of bitcoin right now it's it's solving the biggest problems to challenge you know how do we scale the lightning network's taking off how do we explain this energy usage how do we get comfortable with it um there's so many things that are moving with bitcoin i think this is such a fascinating theory and i think a lot of damage happens to the world because of an inequitable financial system because of the old way the banks work because we always bail the banks out and just this old legacy sort of fiat system um and i think bitcoin is is getting ready to replace all of that i mean this is when i think about hyper change and just mega industries changing and just cataclysmic level tidal wave shifts in how humanity works um going from you know government-backed uh state-backed monetary fiat currency um, to, to a decentralized, you know, basically algorithm or network of computers like Bitcoin is going to be a huge transition um, for humanity. And that is underway right now. And I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And, you know, obviously Tesla is still by far my biggest investment. Bitcoin, my second about tied with SpaceX. That brings me to my next point. Um, oh, and actually, oh, okay. I don't want to ruin the Nick Carter talk. So I'm just going to stop talking about Bitcoin, but oh my gosh, this is epic. So SpaceX. SpaceX owns Bitcoin. That's another piece of news that we got um, during the B-Word conference this week. I think that is alone very fascinating because you're going to see what Elon's doing with Dogecoin and they wanted to make Doge like the official like currency. I'm going to look this up actually. Okay, there was, a, there was a mission called SpaceX launches Doge 1 to the moon. And this is extremely interesting. This was just three months ago. It does not, has not gotten enough play. Um, the Geometric Energy Corporation, GEC, announced today that the Doge 1 mission to the moon, the first ever commercial lunar payload in history, paid entirely with Doge, 
we'll launch aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. And then let's fast forward to this quote by the SpaceX VP of commercial sales, Tom Ocarino. Ocarino, this mission will demonstrate the application of cryptocurrency beyond Earth orbit and set the foundation for interplanetary commerce. We are excited to launch Doge 1 to the moon. Indeed, through this very transaction, Doge has proven to be a fast, reliable, and cryptographically secure digital currency that operates when traditional banks cannot and is sophisticated enough to finance a commercial moon mission in full. It has been chosen as the unit of account for all lunar business between SpaceX and Geometric Energy Corporation and sets the precedent for future missions to the moon and Mars. So SpaceX, which is the company that owns the technology which will get us to space, is saying, if you want to get to the... To uh, your payload or whatever, you know, that's payload, essentially all the stuff we got to bring to Mars or the moon to set up our base there, you're going to have to pay in Doge. And that, it, it already happened. A full lunar mission was paid in Doge and it worked. So when I heard this news, I'm like, okay, wow, this is crazy. And this seems too good to be true. And that's why I bought a little Doge um, because I think, and I know I'm getting sidetracked with Doge and Bitcoin here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull it back. Um, but it's all about the stagnation fallacy. You know, Doge, okay, this this Bitcoin fork that is compatible with Litecoin mining that everyone says is an abandoned project. Well, all of a sudden you have someone like Elon Musk comes in who could push forward the pace of innovation of Doge, who could change the blockchain, who could change the, the brand scope of Bitcoin, who could change what it's used for, like lunar missions. And all of a sudden you have a, a thesis manifesting itself. And so that's, I just think that is so fascinating. And then to unpack more, what we learned this week is that SpaceX actually owns Bitcoin, it sounds like, on their balance sheet. And this is, to me, a genius move for SpaceX because SpaceX is relying on capital markets. You know, they're trying to fund Mars. This is such a big, bold, ambitious vision um, that they need all the money they can get. That's why they do all these private funding rounds. Um, that's why they're going to IPO Starlink because they need cash to get the core company to Mars. And so instead of holding fiat currency on their balance sheet, when they take money from investors, they're transferring those U.S. dollars into Bitcoin. I mean, this is if you don't like SpaceX, this is one of the smartest companies on the planet and they're worth $100 billion and they're doing this like this is I don't know. So I don't know why they didn't use Bitcoin to pay for the moon mission or whatever and make Bitcoin the thing. But they did Doge because I think that's what Elon wanted. But it sounds like SpaceX maybe owns a little Doge. I don't know. I don't think they mentioned that. But SpaceX does own Bitcoin. So that to me is another big shoe to drop when we're thinking about which companies are adding Bitcoin to their balance sheet as a strategic asset, as a hedge against inflation, as a store of value that is better than the US dollar, add SpaceX to that list. And so we've seen the fundamentals of the Bitcoin network and frankly, the entire crypto universe as a whole just totally like catapult forward. Like it's not like Bitcoin is this thing and you know, okay, now I like Bitcoin a little more just because Jack Dorsey said something. No, it's what Jack Dorsey's doing that makes me like Bitcoin more. It's the fact that he's about to create this new hardware wallet, which is going to bring millions of people into the Bitcoin ecosystem. So the pace of innovation for the tools to on to get into the crypto universe are getting easier. The, the, the pace of innovation of the ways to spend your capital from that crypto universe are getting easier as well. And I think what Jack Dorsey's about to do with Twitter, and he's going to launch some sort of Bitcoin payment network on Twitter as well. I don't know. That's a different theory I have, but I don't know. This is, I had to start off the Sunday scheme stash with this because I think the pace of innovation is turbocharging in crypto and it's never looked more inevitable that it will displace and disrupt fiat. And we're getting kickback from governments already pushed back because of, of how much of a real threat this is. And so 
I, I just think this is huge. This is happening in the era of hyperchange. As much as I want to be talking about electric boats and you know new ways to recycle garbage and ways to create no no more single-use beverages, just like real tangible ways to make the world more sustainable and improve it from that perspective, the hyperchange in the financial system is too real to deny. And I think um, there was a really fascinating uh, quote from Elon's talk in the B-Word conference that like governments have a monopoly on violence. Jack Dorsey was talking about how Bitcoin could bring world peace by creating this equity in the financial system. Um, I don't know. There's some weird out there theories, but um, I just think there is a big humanitarian component to this Bitcoin mission. Um, and maybe I'm just convincing myself of that because I own Bitcoin and because I want to justify that ownership. But um, I don't know. This is something I, I'm literally constantly thinking about. Is the energy usage okay? Is this actually going to make the world better? Is it just going to make the early adopters of Bitcoin rich? Is that a problem? Or is that a much fairer system than we have today with the dollar where the rules aren't fair, but now it's fair. If you have an internet connection with Starlink, you can just start buying Bitcoin. So Man, I'm so excited about the pace of innovation in all crypto um, right now. And I, I don't know. So I'm still holding my uh, Bitcoin, by far my largest crypto position. Then I have Ethereum. Then I have a mm, means a little about a doge. So that's the update on that. Okay, should I tell you some Rivian gossip? Maybe I should tell you some Rivian gossip. So I've been hearing about Rivian. So Rivian's delaying their vehicles. Um, but I think maybe I shouldn't be telling you some Rivian gossip. I don't know. All I heard is some rumors about how Rivian is going to set up a, a charging network to compete with Tesla's. Um, and they're going to set up, you know, the Rivian adventure network or whatever it is. And they're working on that. And I think the max capacity of the chargers is going to be 300, uh, kilowatt hours versus 350 for the Tesla superchargers. And there's going to have some like interesting nuance where you're not going to be able to charge as quickly, um, with, you know, like, like if there's a lot of cars that come up to the charger, it's going to really like, you know, if you like, there's like Tesla etiquette, right? When you go to the supercharger network and you're like, oh, I don't want to park next to this guy because that's going to decrease our charge rate. So you always try and leave a space in between. Um, and so to me, what I've heard gossip rumors unfounded um, that Rivian is basically sacrificing that performance in an even bigger way than Tesla is. And they already have a lower cap. So my point is, and it's not that much the Rivian adventure network, like who cares about Rivian's, you know, theoretical supercharger network, but it's interesting to me that I get asked this constantly of, you know, what do you think of Rivian? What do you think of Lucid? Like I was at the kickback last weekend. Everyone's like, Gally, what do you think of Rivian and Lucid? My, my, you know, Julian, my homie stepping in being like, Gally's going to shit on them. Like, don't listen to what he says. And it's like, I don't know. I feel bad that I'm critical of electric vehicle companies or some of them, because I think they are like, we need more electric vehicles. This is such a big need. We need to accelerate the pace of innovation in this space. But I don't think any of these companies are accelerating the pace of innovation in this space. And if you ask my honest opinion is that when p customers get delivery of, let's say, a Rivian vehicle, it's going to be an extremely disappointing experience because the expectations are here. The software UI is not going to be as good. The range and performance of the battery isn't going to be as dope. The charging network isn't going to be as dope as Tesla. Like, I just think that they're not going to pull it off in the same way. Um, and I'm really curious to see how that plays out. But I don't know. To all the people there who are considering... I don't know. I don't even know why I'm getting on this tangent right now, but the, the point being that Tesla is just so far ahead. And I think there's so many layers to the consumer experience. And I, I see a lot of pressure from Lucid and Rivian um, not doing the right thing in the long term, but to sort of appease their business model milestones for the capital markets. Rivian is going to try to IPO for $50 billion and they're going to not even have delivered a single car or maybe they'll deliver a couple of these Amazon vans. And so now you got to hit your deadlines. you got to deliver a lot of cars. Um, how, you know, does that manifest in terms of cutting corners in terms of quality and tech um, so that you can meet these deadlines that investors expect you to meet? Like, I think you get into this rapid sort of uh, top 
toxic spiral of focusing on investor milestones and running the company based on what the investors want to see versus what's doing right for your your products in the technology and taking your time with that. And so maybe they are pushing back on investors. That's why they've delayed everything. But I think there's a very fine balance now where Lucid and Rivian are going to go public at potentially a too early stage. And yes, Tesla did go public. Yes, Tesla was burning money. Yes, Tesla had delays, but it almost killed their company. Like it was so impossible to do. There, it, it almost killed their company because they had to re rely on what I called perceived solvency for years, almost a decade in the public markets or seven years. Tesla has to rely on this perception that the company's doing well, that they're going to hit profitability so that they can keep raising capital to fund this initiative. And so I see Rivian and Lucid, you know, they're going to IPO for these mega prices. Lucid's already public for this mega valuation. And now you have to cross this chasm of backfilling into your valuation, of hitting all these milestones, of ramping successfully, of making consumers stoked. Um, and I think it'll be really interesting to see if a similar short seller community develops around these new EV companies, which I think frankly have much less of a chance of succeeding. But I also think there's like, you know, Tesla's only going to sell 2 million cars next year. There's going to be 100 million cars sold total. There's still 98 million cars to replace. We need a lot of these new electric OEMs to come on board. And so um, that's the gossip I'm hearing there. I don't know. The, my, my, my take on this whole EV space is it's, it's wild to think at how hard it is to come up with a product as good as Tesla's, right? Like I'm, I'm always watching the market, like the Mach-E, if you just saw the Mach-E, uh, like people are renting it in Norway and it's like going up this crazy hill in Norway and like six of the Mach-E's in like two weeks, like died on the hill. Cause like the electronics weren't good. Right. And so um, you know, and at three months ago, I was answering the same question at the kickback, like, golly, the Mach-E is looking pretty dope. The range is fire. Like it's going to crush that, you know, and it's like now, you know, anyway, so I'm waiting to not be disappointed by, um, another EV OEM, but that is yet to happen. Um, although it is really cool to see the Rivian, uh, vans on the road and the Rivian, um, driving Jeff Bezos to space. That was also a pretty cool thing that happened. Okay. Now let's switch gears a little bit. And I want to talk about a, a startup called Synthesis. This is really cool. And I kind of want to start doing this on, on the Sunday Scheme Sash is integrate a um, a startup of the week. So this week's startup, drumroll, is Synthesis. And I think Synthesis is so, this is, uh, uh, you know, in terms of moving the needle, helping the world, this is a company that is trying to reinvent education. And they have a wild story. I'll fill you all in if you don't know. Started originally by Elon Musk or, or Elon basically like a while ago was like kind of mad with how his kid's school was working. He was like, this isn't the right way to learn. This isn't how I would do a school if I was going to set one up. And eventually jams with a teacher who is at his school with his kids. And it's like, yo, what if I pay you to do this new school and we can set it up? I think it was called like Ad Astra or something. So they set up this new school within SpaceX that is for SpaceX students and um, or SpaceX's employees, children. And okay, it's this really cool program works for a couple of years and it was extremely successful and popular. And so now the synthesis has been born out of that. And they've essentially productized that little thing that Elon came up with for SpaceX employees, kids now into this incredible startup. And so there's, and, and, and I've been following this and I had a call with, um, uh, Chrisman, who is the CEO, who was awesome. I was so pumped to have that call. And there's so many philosophical things that that company is doing, uh, differently. Um, but I think they're onto something huge. And I, this, we've all, we all know the education system is broken. You know, we all know that you're not learning the right things. Kids aren't engaged, you know, it, kids aren't interested and they get bored. And so we prescribe them ADD pills and get them hooked on that. Like the whole system is just a disaster. And so, um, I think there's so much innovation needed in innovation. And you think about uh, this is kind of what gets me interested in this is like 
the we have seven billion, eight billion of us on the planet, right? Like, yeah, there's a lot of problems that we face as humans, but I'm like, dude, if eight billion people lived up to their potential and we're actually scheming on how to make the world better, and we're, you know, we got we educated them in this right sort of thoughtful full way to maximize their potential, like this could really move the needle. This is a turbocharge of innovation and progress on the on the simulation we're all in it is is fixing education. And it, it's easy to say that. It's easy to say the system's broken. It's easy to, you know, theorize how you'd fix it. But this company actually is fixing it. They're gaining huge traction. They've productized it. Um, they are a startup and they've gotten funding so they can accelerate their growth. I, You know, that's what, I, like I said, like if you're going to change the world, it's not going to be like a charity. It's going to be in the form of like a startup or maybe a cryptocurrency. Um, and, and so with this startup and what they actually did that's so interesting is they're not really taking money from VCs. They basically have done this unbundling of a VC firm. And this is kind of so similar to what HyperGuap is kind of thesis is. It's like, wait, like, why don't you get thought leaders who can market your product, who actually care about synthesis, who love the mission to fund your company, not just VCs, which is just commoditized, anonymized capital. And so they've done that. So synthesis partnered with Pomp. They got Pomp to, to lead around with them of other dope people. So now they have all these amazing sort of influencers pushing the product. It's led to insane savage growth, which what I think is probably minimal dilution, what a VC would want. And um, so not only is, is the product so fascinating, but the way they've built the company is fascinating too. And so right now they're trying to build the premium brand, um, the sort of Apple uh, of this new education system. And it's like kind of expensive. It's like 200 or 180 per month for like one hour a week. So it's like 40 or 50 bucks an hour. And, and the, the basic theory is why do we have kids running through this assembly line? Like Every kid in a certain age has to do this and read this textbook. It's like we're literally like the Model T, like assembling these kids just to be like brainless, you know, assembly workers, go to an Ivy League school, become a consultant. Like it's just like such a dumb, just in the box, uh, not capturing the 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 gist of human of hum, human sort of creativity and potential. And so that's what synthesis is all about. Like they have these like games, complex problem solving, uh, requires reasoning, dynamic environment, working with other people, ambiguity. There isn't really a right answer. It's all about the, the, the sort of process. Um, and so I think there's so much cool stuff there. And they gave me this really interesting analogy of like when they, they were talking about like when the Russians train people for wrestling, they don't actually like train you in wrestling to start. They just train you to be generally athletic um you know they just want you to be a great athlete and then they can specialize you in wrestling and so i think that is such an interesting metaphor here of like we're not trying to teach all these kids from like i think it's the age of seven to 14 um all of this like direct knowledge like learn this math problem learn that math problem it's just general um sort of problem solving complex thinking th things through critical thinking i'm not doing a good job at explaining it but if you i'll put a link below and you can watch these kids learn and how excited they are they feel like they're playing a video game and like to me, that's just half of it. If you can get kids excited to work together and to do something and to talk about it and to have fun, um, they've just unlocked something huge. And so, I don't know, I'm, I'm such a big fan of this startup and this idea that the ultimate infrastructure for progress is education. This is such a key component, especially in America where our education system sucks. Um, you know, education is set up by protect, protecting the status quo. We need an education system that accelerates progress that doesn't, you know, a big thing about synthesis is it doesn't matter what age you are. You can, you know, work with older kids. You can move as fast as you want. Like, let's not put speed blocks and roadblocks on these amazing children. And that's probably the reason why half of them are getting bored because there's not enough uh, stimulus. So I think that is so, so cool. Keep the startup on your radar. Watch them. Yes, right now it's expensive. Right now it's for a few people, but they're going to, you know, scale this up massively. And I was even thinking like it's... It's $14,000 over seven years, you know, from the age of seven to 14, that's $14,000. Like that's only like $10 trillion to educate like a billion people.
And it's like, actually, that's not crazy. So if they bring down the cost, I don't know. I think there's there's something there's something really cool here happening. And whether it's synthesis that takes off or not, or just their philosophy that leaches into the education system, this is the future. This company is hyper-changing education, at least in the US, in a small way and expanding it rapidly. Love that. And this other idea that like, and this is something I jam with on the founder, kind of p getting me to my next point about how um, you could actually, they're really picky about who invests in them, right? Like I feel like the pendulum has been swinging from founders are like desperate for capital. We have to meet with all these VCs. The VCs are going to be like, well, our LPs want us to take 20% ownership in your company. So that's what we're going to do. And it's like, eh, like that's just such a dumb backwards way of how to raise capital of how to think about it versus like, I'm a startup. This is how much money I need. Who are the best value adds to give me that capital? I think in the future that you will actually have to apply to invest in companies. Like companies are going to have the ability to be like, okay, we want to invest. We'll set up an auction. You'll have to apply with your profile, which will be rated by other uh, investments that you did. We'll rate you as how dope of an invest you are, like Yelp or Google Maps for VCs. And then people will be able to choose the investors they want. Like I think all this, the pendulum is swinging all to the founders. Capital is commoditized, especially in this zero interest rate era where innovation and, and these incredible companies are sort of obvious and scarce and capital is so abundant. Um, I think the pendulum is going to swing to where you're actually going to have to literally like apply to invest in companies and they will get to choose them, which is a crazy flip of, of the entire economics of the system. But that is what's happening in VC. Like this two and 20 model of a seven year life VC fund is totally going away. Um, and yeah, now we'll get to some Patreon questions. Thank you all for submitting these. Jonah with some a bunch of questions. Really interesting one about uh, Bitcoin and ETH and like Solana and Terra and just sort of other blockchains that will overtake Bitcoin. Um, also this idea that proof of stake is better than proof of work. And I wasn't able to cover this in the Nick Carter interview, but I, I'll, I'll just give my take on this briefly, which is like, um, and, and that actually this is a Nick Carter word, which is like mission and protocol fit, um, I think is so, so big or protocol market fit. Does your network have traction? So it's really easy to design a theoretical uh, crypto market on paper and then say it has traction, but nobody's really using it. Like the only thing people are using all these other blockchains for is speculation. You know, Ethereum has NFTs. It has artists using it. Bitcoin is being used to send payments. It is being used by people who are in countries with rapidly inflating currencies as a hedge against that inflation. Like there's real protocol market fit there. No other cryptocurrency has that. So I'm just gonna wait for them to have protocol market fit. And the other thing is, is proof of work, as much as it gets hate for its energy consumption and its sort of inefficiency, I actually think that's a feature, not a bug, because that is what securitizes the network is all of that massive energy cost. If I have to put in huge energy to try and hack the network to overtake that 50% threshold to sort of heist a, a crypto network, um, the more energy that network takes, the bigger it is, the harder it is to do that. And so this is why Bitcoin, to me, there's a runaway effect here. And I'm not picking sides. I'm just trying to analyze this saying Bitcoin has a runaway effect here of where if it has the most energy, it has the most people using it, like it's just going to keep manifesting. It's this flywheel. It's the smartest developers building on it. That means it's going to have more. They're going to come out with new tools to make more people use it. That means it's going to have even more users, which means it's going to be even bigger, which means they're going to incentivize even more miners to use even more energy to, to spend to secure the network, which means it's harder to hack, which means its security is higher, which means it's more valuable. And so that is a flywheel that Bitcoin has ran away with, at least for its own use case, that I don't think anybody will catch up to. And Ethereum is not going for what Bitcoin is. This is a, uh, you know, Ethereum wants to move to proof of stake, which is a totally different thing, which will be dope for little transactions, but will centralize the power. When you think nation states, you think, you know, a huge companies that want to 
you know, put their thing on, on a trust, a crypto asset. Trust is huge. And I think Bitcoin's slow moving sort of dinosaur pace at the base layer of how to implement changes is actually brilliant and is actually a feature, not a bug. Ethereum's moving fast and that's great for what they're doing, but the trust network will go down. Ethereum uh, reversed the DAO hack, which was 14% of Ether was hacked back in like 2015, 2016. And so this caused the, the, the fork where they forked between Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. And what you had there was they didn't follow the rules of the blockchain. They were basically like, whoops, we're going to reverse it. We're going to use all our power to switch the network, to fork ETH, to get all the developers to go with us. And so that is, a, is an example of why, to me, Ethereum is, maybe they'll get over that eventually. That's the only time they've done that, but or, or in a big way. But um, to me, that already signals like this isn't going to be reliable for something that nation states could trust yet. This is more uh, the decentralized computing network for applications sort of um, that are less mission critical, I, I want to say. So, okay, this is an interesting one, Jonah, also. How would you rate the likelihood that Tesla gets a new wind, geothermal, home construction, other home appliances, non-lithium ion energy storage systems like thermal systems, flow batteries, electric aircraft, EV tolls, or micro-mobility devices like e-scooters and e-bikes? So, as much as we love to get carried away, and me, like everyone else, I'm so guilty of this, loves to get carried away with what Tesla's going to do next, what they're going to come out with next, uh, it just feels like they have so much on their plate right now. Like I actually think Tesla is like probably behind on the Cybertruck. Like the Cybertruck was supposed to be delivered really late 2021. I think that's not going to happen. It's going to take a lot longer. The semi-truck has been slow to get off the ground, even though there's reports that that production is coming online. Like there's just a lot. And like the 4680 battery cell that we saw at Battery Day, like this is yet to be put into a Tesla car successfully. And so I'm kind of waiting for that to happen as well. And so the long story short is here is Tesla has so much to innovate. You know, once you come up with the best battery, there's so many ways to use it. There's, they, you know, yeah, they can build a smaller battery that can power everything in our homes. Like anything that uses energy in theory is an addressable market for Tesla. This is the, when you think about Tesla's, what they're going to do in the future, it's products that store energy or let's, let's, let's start with this cars, products that consume energy. Then you have solar panels and solar roof products that produce energy for that consumption. But first, what do you got to do? Store that energy. That's where batteries come in. So if you're a product that consumes energy or creates energy or stores energy, I think you are liable for disruption from Tesla. And that is the flywheel to understand all of their new product innovations. And those will happen eventually. I think they will get into, um, and, and like you think about what Tesla has with the 4680 battery cell and their and their battery division. This is a skunkworks division to create the world's best, either cheapest batteries or most efficient and highest energy density batteries, depending on what they want to put it into. And so when you talk about an EV tall jet, a flying car, I mean, the company who has the best battery technology is going to be in the best position to create that product. So if you do believe that electric VTOL jets will take off and you do believe that Tesla will continue to lead innovation in the battery space, there's an overlap there eventually. And so, um, I don't know. I think it's, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, you know, the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. And so wherever you see huge problems in this energy flywheel, Tesla is going to go start systematically addressing those with like a salt bay of Elon's product fascination. Like, is it exact? Are they, is Tesla exactly mapping their product roadmap to what is going to impact climate change the most? Kind of. And they're trying to, but it's also like a balance of, well, what are our resources? What are our engineers good at? What is Elon actually going to have fun designing? Um, I don't know. I think they're balancing all of that and trying to do their best. Would it be real interesting to hear you scheme out the implications of a working FSD system, not just from an economic standpoint, but environmental, less cars to fill the market, and also how daily life for regular people that can't afford a Tesla could be impacted? I think a lot of people don't get Tesla because the product is out of reach, but I feel like FSD should be a thing for everyone to be excited about. Yes, this is to me the biggest misconception about Tesla and full self-driving is like, 
for Tesla to get, you know, right now they're like 0.1% of miles driven or whatever, like not many miles percent of miles driven are actually in a Tesla, right? Because it's like, okay, we sell your Tesla to you, to some rich person, they drive around for them, but nobody else gets to access that Tesla. And so this is like the Airbnb model of, of how do we maximize our assets? So if Tesla's fully autonomous car can maximize um, you know, its utilization as an asset and we can start renting it out. And it, you know, I'm already seeing taxis in New York because be the model three. And if you look at the data from these, uh, the, these police agencies or police departments that bought model threes, they're already realizing huge cost savings. Cause yes, it's a little more upfront versus, you know, your comparable car to get an EV, but maintenance savings over time, the, the cost to recharge it is less over time. So these are huge savings that are already leaching into the space. There's a lot of layers to this, but I think it's in tandem, this change in car ownership. Like you have something like Turo, right? Like what's the number one car on Turo? It's always a Tesla. Teslas are huge on Turo because A, you have your app. It's a computer on wheels. You can unlock the car. I can monitor the car from the app. It's like way easier and way more comfortable to rent out my car, even without autonomy, um, if it's a Tesla. And so I think Tesla is, we're scratching the surface here. To me, what's exciting is we're how do we're going to go from 2 million to 10 million to 20 million cars produced over the next decade, right? But somewhere in that decade, the utilization of these cars is going to go up 5X with autonomy. And so we're going to get to a point very soon with Tesla can be driving around a thousand more miles by only producing, you know, Okay, maybe that's a bad example, but like they can produce 20 more cars to get to 20 million, but they can be driving around the equivalent of 100 million people, 5x more than that production increase because of this autonomy. So that is the big thing for me. It's like Uber. Uber's raising their prices. Uber's pretty expensive. Imagine if you could get an Uber that wasn't polluting for, you know, one half the cost or one third of the price. Where would you go? Would you be down to spend more money on food? Would it be easier for you to get to that job? What, you know, how much does this open up in terms of progress um, for humanity? It's huge. And you think about what people like Kathy Wood are saying where there's a deflationary effect of, of new tech, you know? Are we going to have governments printing too much currency? Is that going to be outweighed by deflation of tech? Well, I think the robo-taxi thesis is a huge, uh, you know, proponent of the deflation camp because if we can get around for much cheaper, then all of a sudden this is a huge deflationary force um, on the economy. And I think it's going to be a huge win for people. Like, um, I don't know. I think it's kind of an amazing, I don't want to say utopia, but having these cars that are extremely safe, that run on solar energy, that drive us all around for a fraction of the cost of how we get around today. Like, this is big. This is big. Everyone should be hyped about that. Ooh, okay. Uh, last piece of news I want to leave y'all with. I thought this was interesting. Just kind of like something that piques my interest um, was NFT marketplace OpenSea valued at 1.5 billion and 100 million funding round led by A16Z. Um, OpenSea is the platform where I used to buy my joy toys, where I auctioned off my NFT. Um, shout out to Bill Lee for buying it. Uh, that was awesome. And I, uh, I, this is a, like. When you think about, you know, Ethereum and Bitcoin, you know, it's all about the usage of the network, the people on the network, the capital going into that network. A16Z, uh, you know, they're huge. They're a little bit, they're so big that I don't want to say all of their investments are like worth looking at like they used to be. But I mean, Mark Andreessen, Ben Horwitz, these guys are like the living goats of uh, venture capital right now. And some people I'd love to scheme with, honestly. But, and they just put in a hundred million into this NFT marketplace, OpenSea. And so this is the type of institutional backing getting into Ethereum 
Ethereum that to me is is leading to, you know, this means that OpenSea can hire all these dope developers, not have to worry about money, can build all, like this basically leads to OpenSea's pace of innovation accelerating to all these new features coming out for what is already a pretty dope NFT marketplace. So you think about what this, like, like these to me are the signs that the NFT thing isn't going away. It's only going to get easier to buy NFTs. It's only going to get easier to trade them. The marketplaces are only going to get bigger and come out with more features. And so um, as much as the NFT hype has kind of died down, it's like that peak NFT mania. I kind of think of it as like the Ethereum thing in 2017, like bubbles are sort of prerequisites of disruptive technologies. People get so hyped, they get, they overbid it. And then we kind of have this, this trough of like, you know, realization. And then we normalize and, and things keep growing. And I think that's what's going to happen to NFTs right now. And this is a big, big deal. Um, and it being valued at 1.5 billion and getting this huge capital, I think is, is definitely, this means this is a big startup to watch. Okay, this is a cool one too. Peloton plans to launch an in-app video game where you pedal to control a rolling wheel instead of an instructor-led class. I think this is crazy. And they even say in the verge here, the game's vibe and interface reminds me of Rainbow Road in Mario Kart. So I think this is a big trend. And we also saw, I think, wait, Netflix? Netflix also uh, said that they were going to start offering video games on its subscription as well on their new quarterly call. And so this is two really big companies, fitness and entertainment, you know, Peloton getting yoked, Netflix getting lazy, opposite ends of the spectrum, both moving into video games. And so this is, you know, games, and I love this theory that like toys are like sort of this prerequisite to these amazing things. Like everything that's dope starts out as a toy, right? Video games are not games. Video games are a way to immerse ourselves and interact in the metaverse. Like you watch a TV show, I watch my Peloton thing, like I'm just watching it, I'm just consuming it. Like there's no two way. But the next sort of iteration of this, and I don't think we the technology was quite there yet, is this two-way interaction with the digital realm where our physical actions start to impact the content we watch and how we experience what is in the metaverse. And this is something that is, that's huge. And I think Peloton actually has an opportunity to be the VR company because what are you going to do with that treadmill? You know, your tread that is the Peloton that you're running on. Imagine if they build a system where it's like a big tread that when I'm wearing my VR headset, I can walk around this VR world. I'm exploring, I'm running, I'm doing all this stuff, but I'm actually staying stagnant in in this room that's just running on the Peloton tread. And so when I see them getting into this gaming thing, I'm like, is this actually happening? And then I see Netflix pushing into gaming, you know? I've always thought that Netflix, um, you know, right now that Netflix relies on TVs as their hardware device to interact with their software. Does Netflix eventually want to release a VR headset to literally, you know, disrupt you watching the TV and just get in your VR headset? And what are you doing in that VR headset? Are you going to be consuming? Or are you actually going to be interacting with that world? Is that a video game? And so when I when I think about this metaverse heating up, and it's funny that I just talked about Ethereum, um, it's interesting to see these huge companies like Netflix and Peloton push into gaming um, kind of something that I wasn't expecting to see this soon, but both of them are doing it. So that's something I'm really watching out for as well. All right, that wraps up the hyper scheme. I'm a little tired because I just did the Nick Carter interview, but I'm about to post this on Sunday. I'm so hyped. I'm probably going to call it the hyper change from the hyper scheme. And I know my ADD, I'm so ADD with like branding and thumbnails. I suck at that stuff. So I'm trying to, but I feel really proud that I've been consistent and putting this out every Sunday for y'all. And I'm going to keep doing that, whatever we call it, who cares, right? Um, I'm just having a lot of fun with it. And if you want, and if you're a Patreon person and you have something that you really want to know, leave it on the Patreon um, send me an email and, and I'll try and cover it in the show. I want to make this as interactive as possible and just have fun with it. And I love y'all. Have an epic Sunday. See you next time. Peace.